Father, thank you for these students and the many that uh, are uh, behind these walls being held as babies and uh, being taught in younger ages the Word of God. Thank you for the teachers and the volunteers, some of whom, Lord, have been pouring out 15 years of Bible instruction to these precious hearts. I thank you for these children, God. They're magnificent. You created them in their mother's womb. You have great purposes for them, and we just want to rededicate them to you right now and ask, Lord, you do mighty things through these warriors. You do, you would shine as trophies of grace. You'd make them to be trophies of grace. They would shine like the stars with their love for Christ and their effect on the world. Lord, protect them from all unnecessary pain and cause them to have a tender heart for Christ and to believe the gospel, even today when they're with us. Lord, may they believe the gospel in the book of Habakkuk, that they would leave here today saying, I know the Lord. I love the Lord more deeply. Thank you again for children that you invite us, God, only to come to you with the faith faith of a child. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you. So you could see Laura Timmons, um, and if you would like to get on a rotation basis of teaching children, I I asked the babies to come, but they, they didn't budge. And uh, just stayed in their little cribs, and so, but uh, we need help uh, and, and partnership with the babies uh, as well. I once um, watched an interview with uh, Matt Damon on the Actors Guild, um, who's the coolest guy in the whole world. I mean, the Jason Bourne right there. <laughs> and... Um, as he often does, James Lipton asked the, the actors who come on stage, he said, if there is a heaven, what would you like God to say to you when you stand at the pearly gates? And Matt Damon replied, I would like him to say, there's a reason for all the pain. Come in the back and let me tell you about it. Everybody can relate to his, his response. We all want to know a little bit more of the reason the rationale for the pain, and yet we say that very phrase with a smile because we know that no answer, we know the answers, no answer for the pain is going to totally take away the pain, as C.S. Lewis says, despite all that we know, pain is, is painful. So we don't under, seek to understand so that we will not hurt. We seek to understand more so that we will not grow hopeless in our pain, because there's something that's worse than physical pain, and that's a belief that there is no hope, that there is no future, there is no happily ever after, that the movie ends, it goes to black, and after the credits, there is no line that says to be continued. It's all there is, is earth, and we want there to be more. There's a reason that our souls cry out, is there something beyond the pain of earth, because of how much pain there is on earth. 400,000 people have died already in the six-year Syrian war. 50,000 of those deaths have been children. Every year around the world, 20 million adults and children are taken into uh, trafficking, either labor or sex trafficking around the world. And every year, 50 million people in the world die. That's 100 people a minute. So we're surrounded by a world of pain, and we want to know, is there anything beyond this present darkness? 
Because I don't care who you are, whether it's you or somebody you love, there's going to come a time in your life when your present lot in life is intersected with massive sorrow. I'm not talking about the little miniature things that cause us to groan daily that we should be embarrassed about, complaining over. I'm talking about life-changing pain that produces a new normal. And so when that type of pain occurs... We say, is there anything that can bring hope into this new normal? May 22nd of this year, I got a a new normal, life-changing email from our partner in India to the lower right, Joseph Paul. You know him because he heads up all of our our work in Chennai, India with uh, our children at the children's home, El Shaddai Children's Home, about 45 residents, uh, children that are in that orphanage, and then probably about 15 more that you helped put in upper grades such as tech school or, or college. But most of us don't really understand that that's only half of Joseph's ministry. In India, the other half is he has a team of pastors, about 100, that he pours into and provides pastors' conferences. Uh, a ten of them he's very, very close with. He makes sure once a year they get a new change of clothes. He tries to buy a new change of clothes for the pastors' wives as well. Um, no matter what sacrifice he has to make. And so I've been with Joseph to many of the pastors. Uh, I've been to uh, this particular village. It's about three hours north of Chennai and have been there and worshiped with the children and the adults there and participated in communion uh, with the precious believers um, in that church. And I've tried to eat with them. At, uh, at my, my heart loves India, my palate not so much. Um, and have participated in some baptisms there as well in this particular area. One of the pastors, uh, matter of fact, my, the favorite picture that Lisa and I have, I probably have a 10 or 12,000 pictures I've taken when I'm in India. Our favorite picture, though, is this picture of the village, the new converts of the village walking to baptism. Man, and they could be walking anywhere. They could be walking to heaven. Sometimes they are, as the story that I'll tell you today Well. Recently, after one of these gatherings, um, the pastor of, there were several churches that joined in this particular district. His name was Christu Raha. Ronnie's met him, David Sullivan has met him, and and I've met him, the dear man. Well, after the baptism, uh, a, a group of radicals surrounded the group that was being baptized, and in order to intimidate them, they severely beat Pastor Christu Raha. He spent eight days in an intensive care unit on May 22nd of this year. He died. And after they killed him, they burned his church in front of all of the people that you just saw walking to baptism. And so the pastor and his wife, already destitute from a low salary of being a pastor in India, she was now completely broke. She's moved, gathered her children and whatever two or three outfits she had and is now living several hours away with her family. They're the only ones who can care for her. So the question that we ask at a situation like this is, when this type of pain occurs, is there anything that can bring hope into my new normal? Because this widow, this is not going to change. Her new normal is no husband and the memories of a violent ending. 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk faced his own despair, and he asked the question, 
Can there be hope when life falls apart? God gave him two answers. These are the principles. Hope abounds because my new normal is not my forever normal. Second answer God gave him. Hope abounds because God is for me and God is with me. Uh, So I want to look at the first question now. Um, It's not going to be my forever normal. People always ask, Richard, what's your favorite Bible verse? That would almost be me like asking you, what's your favorite sunset? (laughs) Well, I had one yesterday, but it's now today's my favorite one. So my favorite Bible verse is probably the last one I preached on. And so since I'm in the book of Habakkuk, this is going to be pretty high among my favorite now. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the basic answer that God gave to his prophet Habakkuk, that my new normal is not my forever normal. This is the forever normal. Now, in the book of Habakkuk, I know that some of you weren't here last week. Uh, Some of you were. I sort of have to speed through this to sort of satisfy both crowds. Habakkuk has two complaints in the book. Complaint number one is God is silent while sin is celebrated. Habakkuk 1, how long, Lord, must I call for help? You're not listening. I cry out to you. Violence, you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? God's answer to him is not exactly what he's expecting. Habakkuk saw uh, sin being paraded and celebrated in his town and said, God, you should do something. God said, I am going to do something. I'm going to bring an outside force to judge the sin of your town. And that brought to complaint number two. God, you were wrong to let the wicked prosper because the people that were coming to do the judging were really, really wicked. God said, I'm raising up the Babylonians who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They come intent on violence, Habakkuk's disapproval. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So when I was looking at this verse this week, I'm thinking this is the scenario. You're going out to cook on your grill tonight, and you look at the grate upon which you're going to put your burgers, and it's filthy. You say, well, I need to clean it. Your neighbor comes over, grabs a steel brush that's been laying in a mud pile in his yard and says, you can use this. And so now your neighbor says, clean your dirty grill with a brush that's dirtier than the grill. This was Habakkuk's problem. God, how could you use more wicked people to judge the sinful people of, of, of Judah? R.C. Sproul makes a good observation here. When God raises up one instrument to judge another We should not assume that he blesses everything about the instrument he chooses. And I referenced Acts 2.23 because what's happening throughout Scripture and nowhere better than the gospel, when God used evil people to murder Jesus Christ, while on the cross God put all of your sin on Jesus who was dying, We're forgiven, and then God sentences the people who murdered Christ to eternal hell. 
It's called the doctrine of concurrence, that God can use wicked to bring about good and then judge the wicked. Well, unfortunately, Habakkuk had never read R.C. Sproul. He didn't know what the doctrine of concurrence was, and so he did do something commendable. He said, I don't understand any of this, what you're doing, but I'm going to wait for a word from God. Habakkuk 2.2, I'll stand. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to keep coming to church. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm going to give this complaint. Um, I want to do something. I think I'm going to do it next week. Uh, I'm going to bring in, I think, I think, I think, I think. Still praying about it. It just seems too good not to do a testimony. I've been watching it all week. I'm just going to give you a hint from it. The girl that I want you to hear from next week, um, um, 10 years ago, suffered a massive stroke of, um, of the brain stem. Um, in, well, actually in 2008, and surgery lasted 16 hours. I had to remove half of her half of her Sarah Bellum. Um, and I want you to hear more of her testimony, but I want you to hear this as she's, life has changed totally for her, but I really enjoyed this quote from the video that I watched. She's a delightful speaker. I think we should listen to all of the testimony next week. She says, we have our eyes on the ground because we have the weight of the world on our back. The weight of trials we carry causes us to bend over more and more so that our eyes end up staring at our navels. We have become a nation of navel gazers. It is a problem of the generation we live in. We're obsessed with ourselves. How can we ever look up to God if all we're doing is looking at our own belly button? Catherine Wolf, and nobody can say it like her, and I think she'll even say it better next week. But after she makes this wonderfully precious quote on there, she says, you need to read a, a poem that was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You remember he went after Adolf Hitler in the name of Christianity, believing that Hitler was pure evil, and it was right to try to use uh, any means to kill him. And Bonhoeffer's plan failed, and he was hanged for his plot to assassinate Hitler, but he never lost hope, he never lost faith, and he wrote a book of poems, a book of Advent Christmas poems, and this one I had never heard of before, but I, I love it. It's called Look Up, and it's exactly what Habakkuk did in chapter 2. We saw that, look up. I'm going to look to see what God will say. Here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Look up, you whose gaze is fixed on the earth. Look up, you who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up. You whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are crying. Look up, you who, burdened with guilt, cannot lift your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Just be aware, be watchful. Wait just another short moment. Wait and something quite new will break over you. God will come. Well, God did come to Habakkuk, and he, he answered his brokenhearted prophet 
And so the rest of chapter 2, of Habakkuk chapter 2, is God's reply, don't worry about my use of evil forces. I'm going to judge them severely. Even though I use them, I'm going to judge them. So then this is God's promise. Justice will be done in Habakkuk 2 verse 16. God is talking to the evil nation of Babylon. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done, Babylon, will overwhelm you, for you have shed human blood, and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. God's purpose for using Babylon against Jerusalem was not for the purpose of annihilation, but correction. He is for you, even when he disciplines you. They would have self-destructed had God not used the Babylonian army to discipline them. God's future for them was not annihilation. God's future for them was glory. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So now we're ready for hope number two, point number two, and what brought um, hope to Habakkuk. Remember, hope number one was <clears throat> my new normal is not my forever normal. Hope number two, at the bottom, hope abounds because God is for me and God is with me. Now, everybody told me last week when I concluded, oh, I can't wait to get back to church because you're going to uh, go to the end of chapter 3. I love Habakkuk, and everybody always tells me, I say, why do you love Habakkuk? They go, chapter 3, 17 to the end of the chapter. Don't get me wrong. I love it too, but it means nothing without the 15 verses that preceded it. Faith needs a promise. So you can't have the verse 17 faith unless you have verses 1 through 15. Promise. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, of the, is one of the most poetic celebrations of the massive work on God, of God on behalf of his people in all of Scripture. Habakkuk starts praying. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath Remember mercy. You ever feel like your prayer life is dry? So I don't know how to pray for revival. I'd say start right there. I've prayed that prayer, I think, more than any biblical prayer in Scripture. This is my, my north star for praying for the nation, for praying for the world. God, I've heard of what you've done in the past. Would you do it again? Please pray that. And look how he bases his prayer at the end. He said, even though the Babylonians are coming and even though your discipline is is not going to be averted, God, would you still please, in the midst of that discipline, would you please treat us with mercy? God always wants you to ask for mercy. I ask for it all the time. It is my favorite word in Scripture, mercy. God, give me... David prayed it in Psalm 51 after adultery and murder. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, O God. 
So Habakkuk starts by remembering the great deeds of God, the mercy of God. But now he also says, you're not just a God of great mercy, you're a God of great power. And he starts to remember God's power in the past. Habakkuk 3.3, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise and rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him and pestilence followed his steps. Does this ring a bell? This is the language of Exodus. Habakkuk is remembering the great time in life. If you're new to church, there was a time when God's people were enslaved underneath the, the arm, the cruel arm of the world power of Egypt for 400 years, and God rescued them through, by sending pestilence, natural disaster, plagues all over them, and God led them out through the, and he went past the city of Paran, the Mount Paran. That's why. Habakkuk alludes to that. This is the southern route on the way out of, of the Exodus. Uh, Habakkuk says, we can count on you, God, because what we've seen you do in the past. Habakkuk 3, he continues, he stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I want you maybe sometime this afternoon to see how many times when God shows up in the Bible, there's an earthquake. It's fantastic. God arrives and the earth trembles. It's all the way through the, to the book of Revelation. And so Habakkuk is remembering the times when God fought for his people by sending earthquakes. Habakkuk 3, were you angry, God? Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You just got to read Habakkuk 3 today. It is the picture of God stepping off his throne, getting onto a chariot, and the massive warrior of heaven riding across the clouds to come rescue his people. It's unbelievably gorgeous. And here, Habakkuk says, it's a a play. He's being facetious, cynical. God, were were you angry with the Red Sea? Were you angry with the Nile River when you turned it into blood? Were you angry with the Red Sea when you blew and it parted in two? And the answer is no, you weren't angry. You were saving your people. He wasn't angry with his people. He was saving his people through the exercise of his power. Habakkuk still remembers more that God's done in the Old Testament. Sun and moon. Ah, Joshua chapter 10. The judge, Gibeon, needed a few more hours. You ever been working out in the yard and you just were in the mood? Man, I wish I could finish this at night and my neighbors will think I'm crazy if I turn on my car lights and cut my grass in the dark, which I've done many times. This is what happened in Judges 10. The judge, Gideon needed, more, Gideon needed more light, and God made the sun stand still. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens in the glint of your flying arrows at the lightning of your flashing spear. Andy Owen, you heard him uh, preach here uh, on the book of Habakkuk several years ago, a missionary in Central Asia. And I grabbed this quote from him. I asked him, could you send me that sermon, please? It was very, very good. 
I love this quote. The work that God has done in the past is the canvas upon which he paints a picture of what he will do in the future. Now Habakkuk continues, well, God, you came out to deliver your people. I haven't figured it out. I've been preaching for 30 years, and I do not have a good answer for you of why God loves man. I just, I can't answer that. You can ask me a lot of questions. Why he loves us? There's no answer. He just loves us. I don't know, uh, because everything in Scripture is about the energy and the strategy of God in order to bless mankind and to prepare a home for him in heaven, to teach him, to train him, to equip him, to give him a glorious future. And God loved Israel when they turned away from him. God loved the church when, they, when the church turned away from him in the Middle Ages. God loves you when you turn away from him because God is always in the process of delivering his people. Let's continue. You came out to deliver your people. Then he adds a new person here. To save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. Wow. We're starting to get to speak of gospel language here. Because not only is he talking about the deliverance of the people, but here he introduces the the Hebrew word Messiah. You came out, and now he's talking about not just delivering people, but the deliverer, Messiah. And look how he describes what Messiah did. You crushed, you crushed, like, you think of what I'm thinking. You, you're, Jesus crushed. I think there was a promise about that, wasn't it? We see that, man. You crushed the leader, and then with his own spear, Where did all that happen? Remember this? Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, man will crush your head. Yeah, you're going to nip at his feet. There's always going to be snake bites on our ankles. But man through Jesus Christ will crush the head of Satan. You know, we call this in theological circles, we call it the pro-euangelion. Because it's pro first, first time the euangelion, first time we ever heard the good news, the serpent will be crushed by a man. And Habakkuk, though dimly, sees who that man is. Verse, I mean, line three, you crushed the leader of uh, the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to toe with his own spear. You pierced his head. Do you remember what happened on the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? Obviously, he was, he, he was bleeding, he was cut, he was wounded, and then after six hours, he gave up his last breath, and to make sure that he was dead, a Roman soldier came, John 19, 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, and When the blood separates from the water, it's a medical term I don't know, but it means that death has occurred. So there is Habakkuk's spear that Jesus used to crush Satan. 
It's a reference to the cross. Satan engineered a conspiracy of hate to put Christ on the cross, culminating in the spear going through Jesus' side, and the whole time the blood that's flowing out of Jesus' veins is crushing the head of Satan. Do you know what Habakkuk really saw here in chapters 3, 13 through 14? He saw a new exodus, a new and better Moses, a new and better Joshua, a new and better Gideon. He saw Messiah coming to save his people. He didn't know one millionth of what we now know, but he just knew that the mighty warrior was coming from heaven, riding in his chariot on the clouds, coming to deliver his people. He just didn't know it was coming by way of a cross. Now, back to Habakkuk's um, time prior to 586 B.C., so 6th century B.C., so he knows all this, and now he's getting ready. This, here's your prayer. Everybody said, I'm coming back for the prayer. I'm finally getting to it. Habakkuk 3. <clears throat> Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Nothing is going to change in Habakkuk's circumstances. The Babylonian army is still coming Jerusalem will still fall, the temple will be burned, and the walls will be knocked down. This is one of the most beautiful, intense affirmations of Scripture, one of the most beautiful submissions of a human being's will to the sovereignty of God and belief in the mercy of God in all of Scripture. Let me just paraphrase what Habakkuk is saying in these verses. No matter what. I am going to trust God no matter what. Even when I don't understand him, I am going to put my trust in God's glory and love. I am not going to put my trust in emotions and circumstances. No, no, no. I'm looking way past my circumstances, and I'm going to put my trust in God the mighty warrior who delivers his people even through the cross. My, my life will definitely witness some big-time pain, but that does not, it never has, and it never will change the fact that God is right and God is good and God is glorious, and one day the earth will be filled with his glory as the waters cover the sea. And on that day, I will have no complaint about the painful path he led me on to everlasting glory. That's what he's saying. So Habakkuk has moved 
from fear to faith, from doubt to confidence, because he knows God's going to do the right thing, the perfect thing, the just thing in God's time. We begin the book last week with him being disoriented, devastated, and now he ends. If you read the first verse in chapter 3, or I mean in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I'm going to put everything that I'm saying in a song. I'm going to sing this to God. I'm going to the temple, and I'm going to sing. And this is what his song would sound like. I love this quote from David Mathis. This is how his song would sound today. God's people, those who are righteous by faith in Christ, for God's people, for those who are righteous by faith, hardship is not the end of the story. It never ends in pain for the people of God. It never ends in darkness. It never ends in trouble. Devastation never has the last word. 600 years before Christ, God gave Habakkuk a glimpse into the truth he would make so plain on a bloody cross and with an empty tomb when times are darkest, God is ready to shine the brightest. If Habakkuk was able to sing with joy and confidence before the cross and resurrection, how much more should we be able to say, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that Habakkuk is in heaven today. And all those people who died in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came that believed in you, they're in heaven today. Thank you, almighty warrior, rider of the clouds. Deliverer of your people, anointed one, Messiah, thank you that your mercy is never ending and that we are here today and our ears have been able to hear the promise because your mercy is new every morning, including this July Sunday. New mercy for new failures. For new sins. For new rebellions. For new pain. For new bodily pain. For new mental anguish. For new disappointments for new injustice. You are for us, and you, O oh merciful God, are with us. Father, please, in the name of Jesus, bring somebody to Jesus, to the blood, to the cleansing power of the blood, to the sin-destroying power of the tomb, to the serpent stomping, head-crushing power of the resurrection. 
bring somebody to you on their way to see forever the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.